I hope you have your Bible with you. And if you do, you should open it to Nehemiah chapter 12. We have another fairly lengthy text this morning. Another text that has some names in it, which I will pronounce, no doubt, incorrectly, but pronounce for you nonetheless. What we're finding this morning is we're going to read our text. We're going to read uh, Nehemiah chapter 12. I'd like to read through the first 43 verses, which is, uh, again, some, uh, some, uh, some pretty, a pretty lengthy text here as we get rolling here. But we're going to find the first 26 verses are really kind of a, a transition text. They're taking us from uh, the, sort of the, the listing of names and people who were living in, in Jerusalem and who came back and just sort of the organizational things that Nehemiah does. And they're, and they're moving us toward the conclusion, which we're going to start entering into today as we talk about the dedication of the wall. That's what I entitled a message because that's the main part we're going to focus on. We're going to read all of it, but uh, really the first 26 verses are going to be uh, primarily, you'll hear them. I may make a comment or so about it. Uh, there is a few things we can tease out of there. Then we're going to spend most of our time this morning, uh, verses 27 to 43. But follow along as we read together. These are the priests, verse 1, chapter 12. These are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, Sariah, Jeremiah, Ezra, Amariah, Maluk, Katush, Shechaniah, Rehum, Meramath, Edo, Genethoi, Abijah, Mijamin, Maadiah, Bilgah, Shemaiah, Joirib, Jediah, Salu, Emach, Hilkiah, Jediah. These were the chiefs of the priests and their brothers in the days of Jeshua. Jeshua, we're going to find out in the next verse, was a Levite. He was the leading Levite at that time. Verse 8, and the Levites, Jeshua, Benui, Cadmiel, Sherebiah, Judah, and Mataniah, who with his brothers was in charge of the songs of thanksgiving. And Bakbukiah and Uni and their brothers stood opposite them in the service, in their watch. Verse 10, and Jeshua was the father of Joachim, Joachim the father of Eliashib, Eliashib the father of Joida, Joida the father of Jonathan, and Jonathan the father of Jadua. Now I'm just going to interrupt myself as we're working through this since these are names and sometimes your mind has a tendency to drift. What we just read in the first nine verses were a list of the heads of families, not the, not the only ones, but the heads of families that came back with Zerubbabel, the first one, come, the first uh, re return of exiles back to Jerusalem, and Jeshua is the leading uh, Levite during that time. What we're about to read, starting in verse 12, is the names of the next generation of leaders. You're going to notice here, by the way, uh, that it's going to say, uh, of a name and then another name. The of the name is corresponding to the list of names that we just read in verses 1 through 9. In other words, the, 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 the names of the chiefs of the priests, what we're going to see is their sons, because their sons became the chiefs of the priests during the next uh, phase after Jeshua's son, Joachim, was, uh, was, uh, was the leading Levite. And we're going to find out at the end of uh, at 26 that it, they were there during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. So let me just continue reading. Hopefully give a little clarity here when I'm reading. Verse 12. And in the days of Joachim were the priests, heads of the father's houses, of Sariah, Moriah, of Jeremiah, Hananiah, of Ezra, Meshulam, of Amariah, Jehohanan, of Maluki, Jonathan, of Shebaniah, Joseph, of Harim, Adna, of Meraoth, Helkai, of Ido, Zechariah, of Ginnathan, Meshulam, of Abijah, Zikri, of Minyamin, of Modiah, Piltai, of Bilgah, Shemua, of Shemaiah, Jehonathan, 
of Joarib, Matanai, of Jediah, Uzi, of Salai, Kalai, of Emak, Eber, of Hilkiah, Hashabiah, of Jediah, Nethanel. There are a few words, by the way, names that are slightly different. Uh, they're mostly uh, they're the same men. They just have a little uh, different uh, name given there. It's just part of, I, I think one of the things we often forget, I may have made this comment before, we often forget is they were living in an ancient world and things weren't nearly as, um, as put together or as recorded as we have things today. So names changed over generations. Uh, uh, some of this, by the way, still exists. If you have ancestry like I do, sometimes uh, you find out that there's uh, someone who has this name, but other people knew him by a different name. And, and as you come to my generation, you go back a couple of generations and say, well, his name was this. And they're like, no, his name was something else. Uh, and it's just, it's just a function of, uh, is life a little different for, than from us? Let's keep on reading. In verse 22, in the days of Eliashib, Joida, Jehoanan, and Jedua, the Levites were recorded as heads of the father's houses. So too were the priests in the reign of Darius the, the Persian. Now, he's actually reading down the future now. He's, you notice it was Jeshua and then uh, Joachim, which was in the days of Nehemiah, and then Eliashib, which is actually read about here in these verses too, in these chapters too. So he was already there with Nehemiah. And then the next ones, he's just saying that they kept on being recorded all the way through those reigns. Verse 23, as for the sons of Levi, their heads of fathers' houses were written in the book of the Chronicles until the days of Jehonan, Jehonan the son of Eliashib. And the chiefs of the Levites, Hashabiah, Sherebiah, and Jeshua, the son of Cadmiel, with their brothers who stood opposite them to praise and give thanks according to the commandment of David, the man of God. Watch by watch. Mataniah, Bakbukiah, Obadiah, Meshulam, Talman, and Akub were gatekeepers standing guard at the storehouses of the gates. These were in the days of Joachim, the son of Jeshua, the son of Josadak, in the days of Nehemiah, the governor, and of Ezra, the priest, and scribe. I'm going to pause again because I want to wait to read the next part until we get to where we're going to go there. A lot of names there, and I just want to point out to you that these names are recorded, and these were men who did some significant things. These were the religious leaders during the time of the restoration of the city of Jerusalem. We're talking about a time span of 80 to 90 years, and they were responsible for reviving the religious life of the people of God. Their names are recorded for a good reason, because they brought about good things. And I, I, I thought of this week, I, I just thought of the blessing, and many of us can identify with this, and maybe it's worth pointing out to us this morning, the blessing of being able to trace godly ancestry of being able to look back and say, there was people in my past who did things that I'm a result of, that the good things in my life are a result of that. Some of you, by the way, don't have that, right? Some of you come from places or families that you cannot look back, and I suppose maybe you would be the best to tell us, the rest of us this morning, what a, what a heritage, what a blessing it is that we can look back at parents and grandparents and great-grandparents and have a lineage that says these were men that did good things. They revived and they kept going what God wanted to keep going. I had numbers of people tell me uh, from the neighborhood, we live in my grandpa's house, uh, and I had numbers of people tell me when we moved there and I just had conversation, you know, oh, yeah, you live where your grandpa lives and all that kind of stuff. I had numbers of people that would tell me that they would go by there often in the evenings and the lights would be on, and my grandpa would be sitting there by the table, and he'd have his Bible open, and he was reading, and they, they knew what he was doing, because if you ever visited my grandpa, that's exactly how you found him. You walk in the front door, and he was sitting there often, not always, but often, by, there by the table, had his Bible open, and was reading. It's an incredible privilege to be able to look at your ancestors 
and know that they made choices that have so positively affected me and to thank the Lord for that. If you don't have those, by the way, I think it's worth us, each of us, sitting here this morning listening, recognizing that we can change that for our children. If you did not receive a godly ancestry, you know you can change that for your children. You can make so that someday down the road, generations will look back and say, my grandpa or my grandma did something that changed the outcome of my life. I want you to notice also just how structured this was. They're naming people because they can name people that literally watched through the days and nights in the temple. Think about that. Think about what's recorded here. But in the sight of all that, I don't want us to lose. I just wanted to make one comment out of Scripture. I don't want us to lose the heart of what God was bringing about as he structured the temple worship. And I thought of these verses because they, 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 we're, we're seeing the names of how this was set up. And the psalmist recorded it this way in Psalm 134, the first two verses. We know this because we turn it into a song that we sing. Come bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. This is, this is the names of the people we're reading that did exactly that. They stood by night. Several times you saw that word watch. That's what it means. They took turns. There was a 24-7 cycle of people standing in the temple of God and bringing worship and praise in God and, and offering to God. We can speak sometimes critically of uh, Jewish people and how they missed the Messiah. And yet there are clearly things that they did in their daily religious lives that we perhaps should learn from. Let's turn now to verse 27 and read the rest of the chapter because this is where we're going to spend the most of our time this morning. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth, for the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. We talked about that last week, that they needed to bring people into the city itself because it was not settled. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I, Jeremiah, Nehemiah, speaking in first person again, then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate, and after them went Hoshiah and half the leaders of Judah, and Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and the certain of the priests, sons with trumpets, Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, the son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zachor, son of Asaph, and his relatives, Shemaiah, Azarel, Milalai, Gilalai, Maai, Nathanel, Judah, and Hananiah, and with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra the scribe went before them. That was one group. At the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David at the ascent of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half the people on the wall above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall and above the gate of Ephraim and by the gate of Yeshana and by the fish gate and the tower of Hananel and the tower of the hundred to the sheep gate, and they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. 
So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and the half of the officials with me, and the priests, Eliakim, Maasiah, Minyamin, Micaiah, Eloani, Zechariah, and Hananiah with the trumpets, and Maasiah, and Shemaiah, and Eleazar, Uzi, Jehoanan, Malchijah, Elam, and Azer. And the singers sang with Jezrahiah, their leader, and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy, with the women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Once again, we're in a situation where, just to understand it historically, I invite you to use your imagination to picture the scene that was there. I've done this several times as we've gone through the study of the book of Nehemiah. As they're rebuilding the wall, they're repopulating the city, and you're seeing the things that are happening. Hopefully, you're seeing the things that are happening in your mind's eye. Here we see that a great celebration is, is taking place. Let me just start with the first verse we're going we're gonna to sort of focus on, which is the first verse I read of the second section, verse 27. And they wanted to dedicate the wall, so they brought the Levites in. They brought these people in. They, they were the ones forming the choir, by the way. And they brought them in Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness and with thanksgiving and with singing, with cymbals and harps and lyres. There's a couple of things I want to focus on, but I want to also return back to something I had been doing at the beginning, which we kind of walked away from when we began to do the internal stuff that God was doing. We, I, I haven't had in some time a, a godly leader principle. Remember I did this at the beginning? I kept pulling out with the, the ways that Nehemiah demonstrated what a godly leader looks like. And I want to return to that. We're going to get a lot more of that here in the next, we have about, I don't know, maybe five sessions left with Nehemiah here before we get to the conclusion. And just to see how Nehemiah as a man teaches us what it looks like to be a godly leader. So today I brought one with us to, uh, with, to us today just to let us know that a godly leader is one who dedicates that which God has brought about back to him. Pay attention to that because when we're involved in, in, in works of uh, things that, that come together and they, and they come together successfully, it's always, a, it's always an exciting thing, right? But we always face, maybe you don't, I face the temptation at being really excited about what's, what just happened and maybe sometimes taking a little bit of ownership in that and thinking, well, I had a lot to do with that. And what I see in Nehemiah is that he undertook a great work and I would look at this and read and say, Nehemiah is like reason number one why the wall is rebuilt, right? I mean, there he is. He made the inspection. He, he, he well, first of all, he started with, with praying and, and fasting and, and going before the king and saying, I want to come back. But he made the inspection. He roused the leaders together. He, he, he held off all this opposition and he found the, the, the right line between working and, and, and being on guard and, and urging and rallying the troops there and, and addressing the needs or ignoring them when they shouldn't. And you see all these things and then bringing them to this place where they're going to really start really obeying from the inside what God wants. Nehemiah is the reason why that wall is built. And yet I look at Nehemiah here and he says, I'm going to dedicate this wall. I'm going to choose to say God brought this about and I'm going to bring it back to him. You may find this interesting. I'm going to bring a word to you, the word dedication. It's here. That's what the text is we're focusing on. But the word dedication is a word you may recognize actually. It's kanukah, which of course in today in English, how do we say that? You know, because it's a Jewish celebration that happens. We say, we say Hanukkah. That's what that word is. You know what that word means? Well, now you know, because I just put it up there. Hanukkah means an initiation or a consecration or a dedication. To dedicate something, to, to uh, 
to, to give over something. By the way, interesting, you may find this, may help flesh out what this word means or what it's getting at. Uh, the, the root word for kanakah is the word konak. You don't need to know that word. I didn't put it up there, but it's really just the first part of that, konak, with a little emphasis on different syllables. But that word literally means uh, to narrow down. But figuratively, it means the same things. It means to initiate or to dedicate or to train or to discipline. Like a narrowing down. As in, I'm training and disciplining, I'm narrowing down so that nothing else is, 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 is left over except for what I really want. As in, you know, the, the proverb that we are probably familiar with, Proverbs 22.6. Anybody know what that says? Yeah. Should be some good parents in here that know. Train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he gets old, he will not depart from it. That word train, by the way, is the root word of kanakah. Dedicate. That's what it really means. Dedicate a child to the Lord. Give your child to the Lord. Consecrate your child to the Lord. I might suggest, by the way, that puts a little different spin on that verse for us. Rather than us, I want to be careful I say this because it is, uh, we take responsibility, right? But rather than us saying that verse means I'm responsible for, for, uh, for making sure my child is doing it, it actually means give your child to the Lord. Consecrate them. Dedicate them to the Lord. Because who's actually bringing your child about in obedience and who's actually bringing them to the knowledge of Jesus Christ someday and who's actually saving them someday? God is right? God is, not me. Obviously, I'm in, I'm, I have a part of that. I have a big part of that. I may be the most important part of that, quite frankly, whether my children will follow the Lord or not. But I'm really dedicating them. I, again, think of the word, what it literally means, to narrow, to narrow down. means bring your children down that narrow path. Get rid of all the other things. Dedicate them and say, this is where we're going. This is where we're at. Anyway, at the wall, they dedicated. And I want you to notice that that, de that dedication came with something. Pay attention. It came, I'm going to look, put up the last part of verse 27 again. What did it come with? Look at the words used to describe what the dedication was. This was not some dry, solemn occasion. This was not some sad occasion. Oh, we brought this wall about and God, we're... No, it was a happy occasion, right? Look what it says. It was with gladness, with thanksgiving, it was with singing, it was with cymbals and harps and lyres. We know at the end of the chapter, or the end of the text we read, that the noise was so great they could hear it far away. These were not timid little people that were saying, God, we really thank you what you did here. They were shouting. There was music and there was singing and there was... I'm guessing shouts of praise. It was a big deal, which reminds me of the second thing. You know, I told you that godly leaders dedicate back to God what he has brought about, but I also want you to know that godly leaders celebrate that which God has brought about. They're not ashamed of celebrating. They're not afraid. I think it's really critical, by the way. I think for us, it's really critical. We want to strive so hard. We want to work as hard as we can to bring about the godly things among us, inside of us. But when God does something good, we should celebrate it. We should be willing to not be quiet or timid about that. Are we not happy that God did something good? Should we not praise what God has done? This morning we clapped when Gordy shared good news. That's great. We should celebrate when God does something good. It's a way of acknowledging that we understand it came from Him. Let me keep trucking here. Because I want you to see what happens. As they're having this great dedication, this big giant celebration, this joy and this gladness. Look what it says they did. Verse 30. 
and the priests and the Levites purified themselves and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. They're purifying everything. I want you to stop. Just stop for a moment. And I want you to see the clear contrast before we dig into anything else that's happening in the text. The clear contrast between what happens when the world celebrates something and when God's people celebrate something. When there is a big giant celebration from the world, it is typically an occasion for all kinds of debauchery and sensuality. When God's people celebrate something unashamedly, it is an opportunity for what? Purification. Isn't that interesting? Think how, maybe this doesn't happen for you, but for me, think how immediately that clicks in my head where I realize I think wrongly about things sometimes. I think it's why we have to be very careful what we do in our church services. We should celebrate. There should be joy and gladness. If you want my opinion, there should be music and singing. But we want to be very careful because the things that we are celebrating, the celebrations we have, they bring about purity, not sensuality. That stands in contrast to the world. When the things we're doing to celebrate draws us into any kind of debauchery or sensuality, we know it is not God and it's not a proper celebration. They're purifying. Now, you may ask yourself, what does that mean they were purifying? It doesn't go into a lot of detail here, but I can point you to a chapter. Uh, well, in the Bible, it's not too far before this, but in time-wise, it's a little, little, little time away. That where they did this exact same thing. They purified some things, and this gives you a glimpse of what it looks like. Turn to your Bibles to Second uh, Chronicles chapter 29. This is a time of Israel's history where they had stopped their temple worship and a good king came along in Judah, actually, and his name was Hezekiah. And in uh, 2 Chronicles 29, we read about Hezekiah restoring temple worship. And this is what they did when they restored temple worship. And we're going to be reading what they did, excuse me, to purify, to purify the temple and the people and all those things. Listen carefully. Then Hezekiah the king rose early. This is in verse 20. I should tell you what I'm reading. Second Chronicles 29, verse 20. Hezekiah the king rose early and gathered the officials of the city and went up to the house of the Lord. And they brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs, and seven male goats for a sin offering for the kingdom and for the sanctuary and for Judah. And he commanded the priests, the sons of Aaron, to offer them on the altar of the Lord. So they slaughtered the bulls, and the priests received the blood and threw it against the altar. And they slaughtered the rams, and their blood was thrown against the altar. And they slaughtered the lambs, and their blood was thrown against the altar. Then the goats for the sin offering were brought to the king and the assembly, and they laid their hands on them, and the priests slaughtered them and made a sin offering with their blood on the altar to make atonement for all Israel. For the king commanded that the burnt offering and the sin offering should be made for all Israel. Sounds like a lot of blood so far, right? Sounds like a lot of death and bloodshed. But look what it says in verse 25. And he stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, harps, and lyres. Sounds pretty similar to what's happening in Nehemiah. According to the commandment of David and of Gad, the king's seer, and of Nathan, the prophet. For the commandment was from the Lord through his prophets. The Levites stood with the instruments of David and the priests with the trumpets. Then Hezekiah commanded that the burnt offerings be offered on the altar. And when the burnt offering began... The song to the Lord began also, and the trumpets accompanied by the instruments of David, king of Israel. The whole assembly worshipped, and the singers sang, and the trumpets sounded. All this continued until the burnt offering was finished. Do you see that scene? There's a lot of blood. There's a lot of sacrifice. 
They're purifying. Again, it's, a, it's an effort for them. There's confession happening, but there's celebration happening because they're restoring what God has uh, wanted to have, see happen. By the way, I sh- should have not flipped away from that so soon because he says those words in just a couple of verses later. Verse 31, he says, Hezekiah said, you have now, look at the word, consecrated yourselves to the Lord. Come near, bring sacrifices and thank offerings to the house of the Lord. And the assembly brought sacrifices and thank offerings and all who were of a willing heart brought burnt offerings. It brought about this giant worship celebration that they began because they purified. We're seeing the same thing back in Nehemiah here. Here they are purifying themselves, first of all. Mind you, this is a dedication of the wall, right? Like there's a physical object out there and they're dedicating the wall. But how do they do that? They're purifying themselves, first of all, the, the Levites are. Then they're purifying the people and then the gates and then the wall. I find it interesting, and I return to something I said early on in Nehemiah. I think our picture of a wall and the usefulness of a wall cannot be simply to keep out which needs to be outside or to keep in which needs to be inside because they are purifying the gates. There's gates in those walls, which means there's people that are passing through, right? Jesus said the same thing when he talked about the sheepfold as they go in and out. There's something a lot more about identity that we're talking about when we talk about walls than about protection or about shield. Those are involved, don't get me wrong. But there's something a lot more about identity. And of course, that identity is in the people, not in the physical object, right? Where do they start with the purification? With the wall? That's the last thing actually, isn't that interesting? The first thing is the Levites, and then the people, and then the gates, and then the wall. Purification. And you see this scene unfold. Here they are. There's, I'm no doubt, uh, no, not, not doubting, there's a lot of blood involved again with, with all their sacrifices. You realize it costs Jesus a lot. We sit so comfortably, we come to worship so easily, it's very non-committal sometimes. We come and sing and, and we say, oh God, we're worshiping. This cost them something and it was a visual reminder of what it cost to worship, to be pure before God. Sometimes I think we would probably be better off having a little more visual reminder. But the scene unfolds as that's happening and they have these two great choirs and this great amount of people and I don't know what you were thinking of, by the, by the way, when you see the wall of Jerusalem in your mind's eye. You know, sometimes we look at those, they piled a couple of stones together and made a little wall like this. Listen, they had groups of people and they went up on the wall and walked on it. Like a big crowd of people walking around the whole city. This was not, this was not a little stone wall around the, your property. This was a giant wall that they rebuilt. And they walked on it. And they started, they went opposite directions and they came and ended there uh, at the temple most likely because that's where all this stuff was happening. By the way, I, I can't tell you this for sure, but given the, the clues we have here and the clues we have earlier on, and this is not, I'm not this smart, but people who know what the ancient Jerusalem was laid out, there's a really good likelihood that they began their separation and, and one went, I should turn this way, one went south and one went north around the city. They began at the valley gate, which if you would look back into the first part of Nehemiah, chapter 2, verse 13, when Nehemiah first showed up there, remember when Nehemiah made an inspection? You read back in Nehemiah 2, 13, that he went out by night by the valley gate into the dragon spring to the dung gate, and he inspected the walls, and he went around Jerusalem. I find it interesting that it's very likely 
that the very place where Nehemiah began his inspection of the wall to rebuild was the very place he had these choirs begin and walk around. Probably not a huge point, but it seems interesting to me. I often find God to be a God of overlaying things upon itself and things that mean things. They had a giant celebration. And I want to bring us to the very last verse we read for our final main point here this morning. They offered great sacrifices. They rejoiced, for God made them rejoice. The women and children were there rejoicing. And I already mentioned this, but I just want to point it out again. And there was joy in Jerusalem that was heard from very far away. Imagine again if you were living outside of Jerusalem that day. And such a great cry arose that you could hear. What's going on over there today? What's all that singing and all that noise happening? By the way, we are seeing nice, I can tell you, we're, we're coming to the conclusion because we're seeing nice bookends on this story. If you go back to Ezra, Ezra chapter 3, when the great work begins of what God is doing in restoring uh, the, 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 the city of Jerusalem and the people of God, the first thing they do is they rebuild the altar and begin to rebuild the temple. And in Ezra chapter 3, we read these words. And this is chapter 3, verse 10. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. And if you would read just a few verses later... I think I was supposed to flip the screen here. They shouted with a great shout. And you read a few verses later, it says that in that day, the sound was heard far away. By the way, that sound was mingled with tears because there were some left who had seen the temple in its former glory. But both cases, the beginning of the restoration, they lay the temple and a great shout of praise goes up. And when the wall is dedicated, they built the temple. When the wall is dedicated, another great shout goes up. I call them bookends because remember, I told you the very beginning of this study, it's a little while ago, so if you forget that, it's okay. But at the very beginning of this study, I told you that Ezra and Nehemiah were initially one book. So you would have been reading one book together, and you had the introduction, and you had the laying of the foundation of the temple, and you have all these events that happen, and then you have this, uh, the, the dedication of the wall, and then you have a little conclusion coming at the end of this yet. So these are nice bookends for what God has done among his people. But the point I really want to make with this verse is I think on one level so simple and yet on one level so stunning that I don't think we usually think of this. Let's go back to the verse I had up there. Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 43. And they offered great sacrifices that day and they rejoiced for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. I want to point two phrases out to you that come together in this verse that I suggest we probably don't put together very often in our personal lives. They offered great sacrifices and that brought about great joy. Now I know in our heads we immediately think, oh yeah, these sacrifices, they had animals and they were slaughtering them and, and spreading the blood. And, and so that's the sacrifice that they're talking about. Of course there was great joy because of all this celebration. But I remind you, they're called sacrifices for a reason because they cost them something, right? That was their livelihoods they were giving away to the Lord. 
Those are the things they, 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 they relied upon for, for food and for trading and for whatever else. They, they cost them sacrifices, cost them something, and yet the point cannot be drawn back. Out of great sacrifice comes great joy. And my friends, we do not look at life that way, do we? We do not necessarily follow the idea of a great sacrifice with great joy. But I can tell you, according to Scripture, that is exactly what God says happens. We do the opposite. We don't like sacrifices. We don't like having to give up. We don't like having to pay for something that we're not going to get the benefit from. We think out of great sacrifice is going to come sadness because we had to give something up. And God says, no, 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 no. You will find if you're willing to pay the price that joy comes, not sadness, not emptiness, not a wishing you still had that, a realization that you didn't want that to start with. Out of great sacrifice, brothers and sisters, comes great joy. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, when we are lacking joy, it's because we're hanging on too tightly. There are other reasons. I don't, I'm not making an exclusive case here. But maybe, maybe we're hanging on too tightly. Sacrifices will cost us something. By the way, there are still sacrifices. Thankfully, Jesus paid the great sacrifice for us. But if we for a second think that means we have no more sacrifices left to make, then we have misunderstood the gospel. What an offense to Jesus to look at him and say, thanks for giving up everything for me so I could have everything I want. But it's the, th the thought behind. It's the thinking, the shift in thinking that goes against the grain of our flesh against the lie of the enemy, against what the world would tell us, that when we are willing to pay the price, there will come joy from that. You can put your trust in what the Lord God has said is to be true. I can tell you, by the way, that's real Kanaka. That's real dedication right there. Recognizing that I will pay and joy comes out of that. That's where the celebration comes in. That's why there is a celebration happening because as they do it, they, remember, they stood in a square and listened to the Bible for half a day, right? They've been making sacrifices and they know that the promise of God is true, that joy comes out of that. This is a culmination. It's not a testing of the waters, it's a culmination. May we be willing to take the Lord at his word and pay the price, or whatever price that may be. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this book of Nehemiah. Thank you for what we learned about what happened back there and just the, just the way that you work so powerfully in the lives of the Israelites. And it reminds us, it gives us hope that you will work equally powerfully in our lives. God, we need restoration. We desperately need it. Here in Western Christianity, American Christianity, we desperately need a reformation. We desperately need to have our identity reformed as true people of God. Would you teach us? Would you show us? Would you illuminate? Would you open our eyes? We're asking you. We're crying out to you and saying, God, we want that. Would you restore us? Would you bring us back where we have erred, where our identity 
has slipped, where we become too much like the world, where we have joined the world, where we have intermarried, where we have done things as the world, where we've fought like the world does, not realizing we've been called out of the world, out of darkness into light. We recognize God that's going to cost us something. It's going to cause us to have to let go of being cool, of having what the rest of the world has. May cost us other things. I don't know what those things are going to be for each of us individually. But we can see how in the, in the Bible, the people that followed you were, <laughs> they were seen as the fools of the world. Perhaps we have to sacrifice our reputation. But you're here this morning, God, showing us this story and putting, just as we read about some actual event that happened so many years ago, and we can, we can spend our time talking about how that worked and all those things, and yet staring us straight in the face, are the principles you want to teach us? That when a great work is done, it's you, and we want to dedicate that back to you. We want to celebrate it, but dedicate it back to you. And that out of great sacrifice comes great joy. Lead our hearts in obedience, Holy Spirit. We surrender to you in Jesus' name. Amen.